Welcome to Local Wool, a podcast for conscientious makers. I'm Anastasia Williams, and this is episode seven. I have Tamara White of A Wing and a Prayer Farm with us. Tamara, thank you so much for being with me today. Oh, you're welcome, Anastasia. I'm very happy to be here. So just to kind of get started, um, I really would love to hear a little bit about you, kind of where you're from, what specifically you do. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in southwestern Vermont, so I'm in a tri-state area. And it's nice because it's conveniently located. I'm about an hour away in four directions of some sort of major commerce and transportation if I should need it. But I'm in a beautiful country spot on 20 acres. And I've been here for um, uh, like 32 years, I think, when we bought the place and, and worked on it. I've, I've lived here since 1988. So. I don't know. That's that's maybe thirty one years, um, and I uh, have been farming it since two thousand and one, roughly. When my children were little, I homeschooled them, and I homeschooled them for ten years. And one of the first things that we did was uh, get get a few sheep, and the children did all of the research they wanted to. Uh, get something that was smaller, easy to handle, something that was sort of hardy and primitive and um, had a dual purpose. They did all kinds of research and um, and they were young too when they did all that. So we came up with Shetland sheep and then over the next year or so we went to all these Shetland farms or farms that raised Shetland sheep that we had investigated through the Vermont Sheep and Goat Association and settled upon our first sheep, which were uh, Annie and her two boys, David and Morris. So Annie was sold to us as a, we promised that we wouldn't breed her because she'd had complications when she delivered David and Morris and they were beautiful Morris Shetlands. Then we had them for about a day and I was like, oh my gosh, we have to have more. So we (laughs) went back and we um, put dibs on a little ewe lamb that we named Maggie. And then when Maggie was old enough to be weaned, she came to the farm. So Maggie was sort of the matriarch of our flocks today. Um, so that was a long time ago. Um, and then, um, yeah, because she had her first lambs when she was two. Um, so I think it's, it's roughly, I don't know, I guess 15 or more years ago by now that we had our first lambs here on the farm. So we learned everything from books. I didn't have any sheep farming experience and from other farmers and um, we had chickens. And so when the children were older and uh, off to college or careers or whatever, and I was sort of empty nest here instead of of downsizing I upsized and so by then we also had a few other animals it turned out that I'd been sought out by a lot of people as sort of a rescue and while (laughs) I don't run a sanctuary I I do have a pretty soft heart and we by the time that you know we had a barn and we had like sort of the infrastructure to support more animals um the, uh, the farm's reputation had sort of spread that, oh, they have these kinds of animals and these kinds of animals. So the next thing you know, I had a few Cotswolds and then there were some alpacas and people just would find me at events and say, hey, I heard you have a nice farm or I know about your farm or whatever. And I have these alpacas that I can't take care of anymore. Or, you know, I have these pole dorsets that I'm too old to take care of. And, and then I got my Angora goats and um, from, you know, retired farmers, they, I fell in love with them and I call them the Muppets and I'm just crazy <laughs> about them. And actually, I'm just crazy about all of the animals here. I, all of them. I can't, I'm, 
like I'll say, oh, that I'm going to live, you know, and die with Shetland sheep. I will always have Shetland sheep, even when I don't have sheep. But I don't actually know how I could say no to any, any of the animals, you know, like, uh, I just don't know if, if it came down to it. I just, um, I don't think that there are hard and fast rules. And I'll talk about that after fashion, because a lot of people want to know why I have so many different breeds. Mm. Um, so, so like the, the Shetland were great starter sheep, a great starter flock because we, we can, I can handle them. Now I'm, you know, I'm alone on the farm more or less. And I don't have, um, like my friend just popped by, but she has a, a job, a day job. And I had to, you know, wait for her. And I asked her if she could come by and help me hold this one you because I had to give her a shot and I can't do it myself because she's too big, but the Shetlands, I can do that for myself so mm. I can handle them. For, and they're also very tame because I socialize them so much because they're my, my babies. And so they, <laughs> they are easy for me to handle that because of their size and their behavior. So I can take care of them very well. So that's a good reason for me to say that, you know, they will be, uh, you know, even when I don't have sheep, even when I'm retired, I'll still have Shetland sheep because I can handle them well. And they're um, hardy and they're good moms. And they, they, like, I, touch wood but I don't have many issues or any issues with them with lambing and health issues are almost non their feet are great so the angora goats on the other hand like I love them they are super dear they have fantastic personalities but they like they're a lot of maintenance with their hooves and I I just acquired some cashmere goats in the last year that are rescues and you know I said no and I said no and I said no finally I said yes because this person was in tough shape with her cashmeres and so I placed half the cashmeres into a new home but the other half I didn't because it didn't work out for the farm that was going to take them and so anyway I'm expecting cashmere kids now in another month (laughs) in just a few weeks we're going to have cashmere kids and I love them too they're dear but they also have more maintenance in that their hooves require more trimming like the angora goats and so that kind of a thing means that um, I'm dependent on others more and so that would be the type of thing that means that I couldn't maybe keep them as long because I need somebody to help me when I trim their Mm -hmm. hooves and etc and um, the alpacas I need assistance with when I need to uh, give them dewormer they are prone to this parasitic um this they call it a brain worm but it's the meningeal parasite which is transmitted through the deer larva um or the deer manure and deer are everywhere around here so um my best defense because i have lost a couple of alpacas since i became an alpaca owner in the last 10 years is to give them uh you know um a parasite control once a month. So if I don't do that, I can't kind of get ahead of this meningeal worm parasite. And I don't want to, I don't want to see any more of my alpaca suffer. It's really hard on me when the animals are, mm. are hurt or suffering. So I, I know what works. And so they have this protocol, but it means that once a month, I need somebody here to help me hold them because they don't like getting a shot. They're really friendly with me otherwise. And they only need to be shorn once a year. So I consider the alpacas low maintenance. Um, I actually don't remember what we were talking about. (laughs) (laughs) I told you I would talk too much. So you'll have to just, (laughs) I'm going to park the bike. Okay. Tell me now. What are we talking about? Okay. We're just talking. Well, you kind of, you answered them. I was just talking about like you and what you do. Um, So so kind of on the same vein, we'll kind of stay in this. Um, so you have a lot of fiber breeds now, was that, I, I imagine when you guys started out and you had sheep for the kids, that probably wasn't a thing to think about at first, or have you been a fiber artist or anything? Well, I've always been, uh, a maker always. And, um, you know, I learned to sew through 4-H and I had, uh, quilting all over my background with, um, an aunt who was was quite a renowned quilter in her day and she actually still does work and, and she's 
quite elderly now, but um, lots of um, homesteading and crafting arts in my background that I grew up with. But I wasn't, and I was an okay knitter and more of a crocheter, but I think I have this sort of, uh, I have this strong sort of this Yankee heritage on my mother's side that has me not wasting a thing. And so when it came Mm. to these animals, they produce this fiber. So we were definitely going to harvest the fiber and make yarn. And then, you know, so all of the byproducts of the hobbies that we had and the hobbies were also utilitarian because we had this 20 acre land that we didn't want to mow we wanted to put sheep on to mow and so it it came of like love and um it came of the the wanting to um I'm trying to find the word but I think I seem to not be able to to um to be keepers of this land that we own to 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 sustainably graze it even though back when we started we didn't know that that's what we were doing but we didn't want to be mowing all of this acreage we thought we should be grazing animals on it so it was like we didn't want to get sheep because we just wanted to get sheep we wanted to get sheep because we wanted them to keep our property and then the byproduct of their fiber was you know all the more exciting because we could use it for fiber art it didn't start though that we wanted we were fiber artists and wanted to raise fiber animals it was sort of more like we have 20 acres here in this beautiful country and so we should be grazing it we shouldn't be cutting it with you know fossil fuels and all of that and um it's just a natural thing to have grazing animals and why i always think like why wherever i will be i will want to make the most of wherever i am and i'm in the country with fields and and I, you know, I think that also just knowing how good it is for the fields to have these little animals, you know, marching around and grazing and fertilizing and contributing to clean air. Uh, it's, it's just quite beautiful to me that then also we can have this fiber that we can use to make garments or blankets or whatnot. So we have, um, so I love the fiber art aspect but it's not why we started. And then my kids being as sort of as thrifty as I am, were also like, well, we should get dual purpose animals because uh, a lot of farmers that I know think of the animals in terms of like meat or whatever the byproduct is. And so even though I don't raise my animals for meat, that there is that dual purpose to me is like, it's just part of the fiber of myself is just to think like, I don't know, I can't, I I can't shake that whenever I think about having a something, I think about the utilitarian aspect of that thing. So where, where I'm concerned, I think about myself and like, what have I got to offer? And I don't know if it, if it's a work ethic thing or what, it's just like, I'm always thinking like, it has to have a purpose. It has to have a function. So these animals, like I can tell you what the purpose is, the function, the byproduct or whatever on every single one of them. If it's my eight cats, I can tell you (laughs) what each of those eight cats job is on this farm. And there's only one cat that gets away with being a slacker it's smally and it's because he's just beautiful so but he doesn't do a darn thing he just like sits there beautifully gazing all the time he's like a stoner we just don't know what what it is but maybe I just haven't figured out his purpose yet so where you know so I you know I cut him some slack but everything around here has a, a everyone has a job and so if you're a sheep your job is to grow wool and if you're an alpaca your job is to you know to grow this beautiful fiber and at the same time they are grazing and then they're fertilizing and they're returning you know carbon to the soil and so they're doing so much they're just underpaid all of those fiber animals (laughs) they're doing so much for the world as well as growing this beautiful fiber so it's just it just you know makes me cry sometimes I think about and I'm not I'm not trying to be um silly or dramatic but it's just like 
oh gosh, if people were only so beautiful and pure as the animals are, I'm, I'm so inspired mm-hmm. by them. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm an animal lover. <laughs> um, so the fiber came, and I'll tell you a funny story, like for many years, Shetland sheep don't have a very heavy fleece. They have like two to three pounds of fleece when they're shorn, like we shear twice a year because they get a break in their fiber. And if we go longer, the fiber quality is not as good to spin into yarn um, as far as the way I use the fiber. For a hand spinner, sometimes they like a whole year's worth of growth. Um, But I'm not crazy about a year's worth of growth on the Shetlands, especially because they feel a lot better after I've shorn them. So when you shear them and you get two to three pounds of fleece, it just doesn't add up to be processed at a mill, you know, until you've been doing it for a while, because I only had a handful of sheep to start with. So we sat on the wool for many years before we actually made our first yarn. And so then when the time came that we made our first yarn and I sort of fell in love with what they are and what they do all over again. And that yarn was like, just, you know, so sacred to me. Um, we started thinking, okay, well, now we have this yarn, we have eggs, I made pies, we should have a farmer's market stall. So we signed up at the farmer's market. And that's when we started, we started to sell the things that we make here on Wing and a Prayer Farm. And so it just grew with all of these added animals and added, you know, yarns and um, some things I don't make anymore because, you know, I, I make different I, you know, I make different yarns than I used to make and all of that. So, um, and now I naturally dye everything as well. I sold the yarns undyed for quite a few years before I, I kind of taught myself how to naturally dye and started Mm. doing that with all of our yarns. So we have a dye garden now and all of the, yeah, almost all of the color is a hundred percent here from the farm as well as from the natural colors of the animal's fiber. Um, And so when, like, I think I was saying that when the kids left and I had the infrastructure and the animals, I grew the farm and I grew the business instead of downsizing because I kind of knew what I was doing by then. And I had uh, a customer base. So I, um, I went ahead and I don't know if I'm distracted because uh, one of my animals is knocking something. But anyway, and I don't know if you can hear that. I can hear, yeah. You, you, you do? Okay. Um, Someone's trying to escape. Yeah, they really want to be fed. Anyway, um, so I, I went ahead and, um, you know, I, I grew the business and I just, I started to host events because homeschooling and having a house full and then having no one, you know, I had all this extra time, but I needed to do more with. So I thought, well, like, let's bring fiber artists here. And, and, and then I can keep seeing folks while I'm at my farm. And so we started to, um, I say we, and uh, usually it's me. Um, my daughter does come home from, she's, um, finishing up her master's program and when you know ever she's home she helps me and um, so at any rate I um, wanted to host things and so that's how I started getting more into agritourism and I've always been an educator I always um, had groups homeschool groups here and worked cooperatively with other homeschool families to I don't know share fiber arts as well as um I always did the art and the art history aspect and somebody else would do like the science or somebody else would do when we did cooperative and collaborative projects with other homeschoolers. So it was natural for me to fill my home again with groups and in pursuit of education and this time in, you know, fiber arts mainly. And we do some homesteading workshops here and I teach natural dyeing as well. Um, So I love continuing to share this farm and homestead with others. And it also helps round out the offerings that I have as as this is my full-time job. So I can't actually run the farm just by selling yarn. I have to do all the things. And um, 
yeah at some point i would i would I would love to share about the cost of yarn. It's like a whole other podcast, but um, it's it's my joy to be a yarn farmer. Um, and I just, I, I'm so grateful to the people out there that support our farm too, because buying yarn farm, uh, farm yarn is not an inexpensive purchase generally mm, speaking right. when we first started out i was so underpriced i just sold the yarn at cost um and because i didn't know better i didn't value the yarn as much as i should have but i also was competing with like i mean when you see superwash or you see like brightly colored yarns from um wherever you know where people can buy them for a quarter or a third as much yeah you know you don't you you, you you will sit on your yarn depending on where you are. And so I sat on yarn for a long time. And then, and so I, um, but now I know that I cannot afford to sell the yarn at cost. And so um, I'm smarter. I'm a smarter business person now because if I can't, if I can't run my business, then I can't, you know, justify this farm and all of the time I'm thinking about how important the animals are to me and how I want to do right by them. So that means I have to work a little bit harder to educate people who don't understand why this yarn is, it costs as much as it does. So um, at any rate, I won't talk any more about that because it gets kind of boring, <laughs> but it is, it, it turned out to be another important part of my business is sort of educating uh, about um, the value and the, the cost of yarns from a farm, a small right. farm. Right. Yeah, I do. I do think that's really important. One thing that we started kind of talking about at the very beginning, but um, kind of jumps away a bit, but obviously you have, it sounds like a, a gazillion breeds, which is kind of unique, actually. I don't think I see that a whole lot. Um so would you mind running through those with us and like how many of what you have? Yeah, I can do that. Um, so we started with Shetlands, as I said, and then I think my first rescues were a pair of Cotswolds named Lavender and Hester. And then somebody else heard I had Cotswolds <laughs> and then she brought me three more and then she ended up bringing me two mini donkeys. I have three mini donkeys now. Um, I had four and I, um, or you know, two came from another person and one came from another person and then one came from another. So anyway, uh, three sources for four mini donkeys and the, the breeds, let's see, then there were the pole dorsets, um, love my Cotswolds, then Wensleydales, oh, a tease water came, she needed a home, she's so sweet, her name is Little Ness, she's beautiful, um, and yeah, and then the Wensleydales, a couple of them, um, Oh, the Cormos. I have Cormos and Merinos. Oh, the colored Merinos. So my Merinos are colored Merinos, so they're all very chocolate colored. They're beautiful. And um, the Cormos are white. So the Cormo and the Merino fiber is the fine wool of the farm. The pole dorsets um, are, they're sort of a, I mean, somebody, somebody calls them a medium wool. Somebody called them that, but I actually think that they're pretty fine. And I can combine them with the fine wool for a nice yarn. But I also like to make a good sock yarn with the pole dorsets yarn or wool. And then, um, let's see. So I talked about the long wools. I talked about the Shetlands. I talked about uh, the fine wools. And the. And so I think I covered all the different breeds of sheep that we have, except for the latest. So um, I now have ballet black nose sheep on my farm and they are currently um and i can call them that though they are f1s which is the first generation and i'm in a breed up program so these are not rescues this is something i was very intentional about doing um and they are considered a long wool 
So the okay. little uh, babes, when they grow, will have wool to uh, compare to the Cotswolds fiber and tease waters. So there are moms whom I got in an online auction a year ago um, from Oregon, <laughs> which is a really funny story sometime, it is uh, our tease waters. And so um, they are... There are different types of animals when you're in a breed up program that are considered good foundation animals. So the the ewes that I got, the teaswater ewes, are named, well, I named them June and Dolly, and they came to me impregnated with Valley Black Nose Sheep lambs. And so they were AI, they were artificially inseminated in Oregon. And then um so this the Valley Black Nose Sheep um Embryos nor the animals are allowable to be imported in the U.S. They can be imported into the U.K. and New Zealand. Those are the couple of places where it's approved. So you can import the semen now in the U.S. And so that's very exciting for any of us who have always wished to have Valley Black Nose Sheep. Mm-hmm. So I've got these F1s on the on the barn floor now, and they are so cute and just <laughs> fabulous. And I'm just, I just cried when, when the first one was born the other night, little Jolene. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I just couldn't believe it because I was realizing a dream. I, you know, always wanted these, these Valley Black Nose, but you could never have them. Right. they're from Switzerland and you know even back when I first wanted them first fell in love with them and I'll tell you it's it's not it's because they're cute um <laughs> even <laughs> back when I first wanted them there it wasn't like I never dreamed that it would actually happen because it was one of those breeds that oh no you couldn't get them nobody could get them and so it's like when they when when she was actually born little Jolene and I saw their markings because as F1s, it, it can be a long time before you see all of the markings that they would look like a valet black nose, but they are incredibly well marked. And so their, yeah. their dad really threw the markings. So uh, I just, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my gosh, it's happening. And, and so dream come true time was happening just a couple of nights ago. I, I can't imagine, like, I don't think in my life I ever had that feeling. I mean, do we, do we, any of us really ever have a dream come true moment sometimes, but so that, that happened and they're just wonderful. So their fiber, everybody that knows about their fiber that wants to, I don't know, pick a fiber fight, <laughs> likes to say, oh, well, you know, oh, it's coarse or I, I heard it's coarse or it's very coarse or whatever. And it's like, well, you know what? Law. Um, Cotswold fiber is considered coarse as well. I love my Cotswold. I also love their fiber. So I've spun Valet Black Nose Sheep fiber before, and I found it to be comparable to the Cotswold fiber. So many mm. years ago, somebody who knew I was crazy about them brought me back some fiber from Switzerland, and I got so excited. And so I washed it and carded it and combed, and then I spun it, and I just... I was, I was loving it. And I thought, oh, this is so much like Cotswold fiber. So I never had any sort of um, fiber bias toward them. But I, you know, I think like the world is full of superwash and merinos Mm -hmm. and, and it's not, there's nothing wrong with that fine wool and soft yarn. It's it's just that I think it's like, um, I like all my food homemade. I like my (laughs) yarn homemade. I like, I just like I like to feel history and a story in a thing. And I think it allows you to do that. So for me, it's beyond like that initial touch. I feel like there's this texture has story and that story Mm -hmm. so meaningful to me is what makes me appreciate a thing and value it. And so like, of course I'm, I'm going to love their fiber no matter what, because there's so much meaning attached, but the, the uses for fiber like that vary. I used to have all our Cotswold fiber spun into rug yarn. And so it was a, a heavier weight. And my mom is a big um, punch needle rug hooker. And she's made so many rugs. And so 
it made beautiful the Cotswold fiber made beautiful rugs because mm. it has all that luster in it too. So like you'd have this beautiful punched rug that had like luster that was pearlescent and beautiful. So it, there are uses for a, a long wool or a coarse wool, you know, if you will, a wool that doesn't want to be a baby sweater. I imagine that uh, we'll find the use for the Valley Black Nose sheep fiber when the time comes. Probably it will blend well with the Cotswold fiber. So, um, so anyway, I can talk a little bit about how, now I've told you about all our different breeds, about what, what I do with all that fiber from all these different breeds. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the Shetland fiber, I just love as a hundred percent Shetland. So I used to do like a little bit of this and a little bit of that and blend it with mohair or blend it with alpaca and make some really beautiful like DK um, or, or sport yarns. But I think in the end, in the last couple of years, I've come around that all I want to do, take my Shetland and do just a hundred percent, you know, of, um, of a DK usually like a, or a worsted, worsted weight. And, and then it, you know, I can do different colors because I have a lot of different colors of Shetland sheep and have a hundred percent Shetland line. Then the other fiber, like the long wools from the Wensleydales, the Tees Waters, the Cotswolds, it usually wants to be blended. So with some fine wool. So I have this one yarn, I call it Amber and Almeida. And they're my like sort of charcoal and grayish colored Wensleydales. And I blend their fiber with the colored merino because you know it's sort of a the dark color and get like a really pretty um it's a sport way that that their yarn is sometimes I forget the different ways and so I can I can like pick and choose I feel like a chef in a kitchen what I want to do and so then the like the tea waters and the Cotswolds oh probably one of my favorite yarns. I'm going to say all of them are my favorite yarns, but one of my <laughs> favorite yarns that we've ever made is called Thelma and Louise. And the original Thelma and Le- Louise. So like, because the fiber is, you know, their fleeces are shorn each year and I'm making new yarn each year. It means that um, the yarns that I make in a year are vintage because first of all, once they're gone, they're gone. And because the animals are going to grow out of new fleas. And then second of all, um, there's so many variances. Like for, for example, say we had a sort of a drought year, the fiber quality is going to be different when we shear than the year before, if there was a lot of rain or mm-hmm. an animal is getting older. So the fiber it contributes might not be the same quality it was year before. So and then there's new animals, new yearlings that are having rock'em sock'em fleeces, you know. Oh my gosh, all my cormo yearlings, they have like they have like a sofa's worth of fiber on them and they're beautiful. <laughs> they're just gorgeous. So like there are all these different things because we're talking about living animals. We're not talking about synthetics that have been spun by a machine. So it makes the yarn vintage every year. And my favorite blend was Thelma and Louise. And Thelma and Louise are two of the Muppets. They're my Angora goats that um, represent the Muppets, the Angora goats. So the mohair from Thelma and Louise and their clan was combined with the long wool from Hester and Lavender. These were my Cotswolds and Mocha and Latte and Iris way back when. And then we added in some fine wool. So it was like I think the original spin was um, like 50% of um, long wool and 25% mohair and 25% fine wool. And so we made um, a light worsted that we called Thelma and Louise. And that was my favorite yarn. And what a beautiful yarn. And so every year we try to recreate it. And every year it's not quite the same. And this year I'm having it worked on by a mill I you know I give them that skein that original skein and they try to achieve that so um so when people write patterns or they knit it up and then they want more and they're like well this is not the same like yeah I know it's not quite the same but um 
it's the meaning is the same. It's still the same animals, more or less, and uh, it's close. So it's fun. It's like being um, an artist or a chef or something, combining the different breeds and the different stories and creating yarns. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's really fascinating. Um, and one of the, and we've been talking about the Cotswolds a little bit, but those ones are really interesting to me because they are considered to be a threatened breed. Um, and you actually are a participating member of the, the Sherem to Save Them initiative. Is that correct? Yes. And um, so the Livestock Conservancy started this great program in the last year. It's like it's shave them to save them and they have a cute little acronym se2se and they have um these passports that participants can um apply for in the program so i'm not i don't have a passport because i'm a producer in the program so i have a Mm -hmm. different kind of membership as i'm a member of the livestock conservancy because i i have well cotswolds are considered um Uh, a heritage breed that are um, that are endangered but also Shetlands but Shetlands aren't Shetlands aren't threatened so as um, much as the Cotswolds are anymore they've come back so um, as a producer I'm a member of the Livestock Conservancy and then if you would like to participate in the Shave Them to Save Them program you can apply and get a passport and they are asking that you know you visit all of the members that you want to based on their directory to acquire uh, samples from all of these different breeds that are protected. Um, And you can fill out your passport. So whenever somebody wants to add like some Cotswold fiber to their passport, they could buy it from a Cotswold producer like myself and they could get Cotswold locks or I have roving um, or yarn, or they could buy Shetland locks like fleece or roving or yarn from me. And um, then I would send them a sticker to go with their purchase for their passport. And it tells what kind of breed it was and um, the date and the farm. And so then they put that in their passport. And people are really, really embracing this program and they're trying to acquire all these rare breeds and so they're supporting a lot of small farms like myself all over the world who are raising you know um, breeds that are are rare or endangered threatened and um, it's just amazing because a lot of farmers could go undiscovered and have a very difficult time marketing their fiber a lot of fiber farmers I want to say it's it's not an easy thing to market unless you know you have help or you're interested or you have some savvy to do it because um a lot of farmers are just working so hard just farming that it's hard to get their their name out there too so this is helping to do that for them as well as supporting uh the conservancy and supporting the rare breeds and the heritage breeds so um It's exciting for me because I'm noticing a lot of people are not scoffing at, at like, um, you know, the Cotswold fiber. They're very excited because there are lots of like groups and, um, there's a lot of good, um, social media covering it and it's all very positive. People are sampling all different breeds and they're loving it and they're excited about it. So it's great too, because they also will learn about, um, the integrity of the fiber from like Navajo churro versus the Cotswold or the Shetland or, you know, they're um, the Florida cracker sheep. There's all so many different breeds that they're learning about and then appreciating the differences in their fiber. And I think that that means that they'll be able to share with somebody too. You know, it's, it's just going to help get the good word out about, uh, about fiber flocks in general. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's super amazing and it's, it's nice too, because that passport program goes for several years. So it's not like somebody has to feel rushed through it. I mean, you have, I think up to three years to complete it, to be in the running for like prizes. Yeah. Yes. I, 
I'm glad you, you said three. For some reason in my head, I had five, but I don't know. And part of the reason I don't know is because I'm not, I don't have a passport. So, um, so that's good because three years, that, that gives you plenty of time to participate, you know, in a leisurely fashion, as well as gives them plenty of time to get the word out. So what's happened for me already, I've run out of stickers twice. I've had to get more oh, from wow. them. I had to, because I didn't know, I, I mean, I didn't know it was going to be so enthusiastically supported. And so I, I think the first time when I signed up to be in the program, I, you know, I ordered, they send you the stickers free and you, you ask for, you know, how many you think that you'll need. And I was like, well, 20, because maybe 20 people will order this raw wool or this roving. I just don't usually move it very well because I'm selling it online. And a lot of times people want to see that in person Mm -hmm. and poof, they were gone. And so I had to get more stickers. So all my people had to wait while I got more stickers. And recently I got 50 more stickers and I had to send them out to people like in a special envelope because I'd filled their orders several months ago, but the stickers just came because the livestock conservancy is um, having such a, you know, they're having to catch up as fast as they can. They didn't know it was going to be so well received. Isn't that great? It is great. Yeah. That's amazing. So, okay, so you've got the two breeds, and um, I, you know, honestly, like, I'm not super familiar with Cotswolds. So, they are a long wool. We know that. Um, so, you described having locks. So, is, is it like you would get locks versus you would get a fleece? Yeah. So, when, I'll tell you about them. I, I think I neglected to do that. They are, um, so they're from the Cotswold region of the UK of England, like sort of near the Welsh border originally. And it was like, I think over 2000 years ago, they came in, they were kind of a Roman descent, um, larger animal. And so they were a good dual purpose animal back when they were originally being um, uh, farmed and used because they would, I think, they were known for the meat industry to grow like sort of a good, less muttony tasting sort of a meat with um, like a large animal. So, and you didn't have to grow them as long. And so they were really good if you were that kind of farmer, but if you were a wool farmer or both farmer, uh, they were great because they grew these long lustrous flocks and their, their wool, though, when you shear them, you can shear off like the whole fleece, it sort of falls apart because they're curly. They have a lot of crimp, as we say, and long. And you see a lot of Cotswolds, like very stereotypically, you would see them and they have like a, uh, like a very dreadlocky, if that's okay to say, like, like hairdo, <laughs> you know, with the, yeah. the long bangs that are all curly in their eyes. And that's very much a Cotswold look. And, and um, so those locks, also can be used like not only to be spun into yarn, but also for felting, needle felting. People like to use them because the the curl and the the sheen, the luster will, you know, it'll it'll hold on to that integrity if you wanted to use it in fiber art. So I've seen beautiful rugs woven with the locks and they, you know, add interest and and softness and shine to whatever the finished product is very beautiful but the fiber the micron count is actually higher and I don't remember what the micron count is but it's a coarser fiber in that it's um it's just not as fine as some of the other wool but it makes it very strong so originally it was an excellent fiber to be used in the um ship building industry because they used it for the um, ropes on the ships, on the tall ships oh. in England. And the wool was such an important export for the UK. Like a lot of the, you know, it, it sort of supported financially a lot of like the exploration. I think it was in the 15th century, whatever that um, the UK really depended on the wool of the Cotswolds to finance um, many of the industries there. And um, I think they even like the county seat is made of Cotswold fiber or something like that. Um, one of the, I don't know, I can't remember exactly, but there's like a fancy seat made from it <laughs> to, to, you know, to, to uphold how it was, it was such an important piece of their financial history. And um, the animals weigh like 200 to 300 
pounds. So my Cotswolds are big. And when I first got them, they were the biggest sheep here because I had Shetlands. So we called the Shetlands like tugboats and the Cotswolds were the cruise ships. So we, we, <laughs> I make up nicknames for everything on this farm. And so the cruise ships, every time we talked about the cruise ships, everybody knew who I was talking about was the Cotswolds because out there in the sea of the field, you'd see all the little tiny Shetlands and then the cruise ships and they're just like these big beautiful animals but they're very docile and very like sort of teddy bear faced and sweet and friendly easy to handle so even though they were great big animals compared to my Shetlands they were um they have very gentle um nature and um anyway I fell hard for them I'm trying to think if there's anything else they're like sort of known to be uh pretty easy to raise as far as not being too sensitive to the forage that they eat like not needing a special diet but I don't think I think it's important to share that there are no hard and fast rules on animals I have had Cotswolds here about eight Cotswolds a couple years ago and I want to tell you they had the most sensitive rumens ever they would bloat by just looking at hay you know i've had a lot of animals here and it was the first time i ever had any animals that needed baking soda which is what you give to animals if they bloat Mm -hmm. um and i never had to do that ever and i walked in one evening and like they all looked like they were like hot air balloons with beautiful curly long locks all around them they were just looking at me and i was like oh my gosh you guys what's up with this and so um it turned out they were just prone to it. I didn't know that because I'd never had animals. So, so anyway, you might read about Cotswolds being like um, easy keepers, as, as they say. But I think every animal is an individual. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not yeah. holding on to that hard and fast rule about Cotswolds being able to have any kind of forage. I think you have to watch their diet somewhat. Um and I think that's as much as I know about Cotswolds. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's really interesting. Um, I think that long wools for some people, you know, when you're just kind of a knitter who you have maybe a yarn shop and you've got like just a lot of super washes, a lot of merinos and stuff. A Cotswold is something that you probably don't encounter very often, especially most things that have long wools. You don't see those a whole lot either. So I think that's that's a really interesting uh well breed really um but in I know that you of course we've talked about like all the sheep that you have and you know now you're doing that valley black nose program which is really cool I guess uh, just a quick question so how so they're technically now they would be 50 50 teeswater valley black nose is that correct that's correct and so I'm in this breed up program and in the registry, it will be technically the you the use can be registered, even though they're F1s, even though they're 50-50, because this um, in the in the Valley Black Nose Society in the United States, you know, it's it's a brand new thing. It's only two years old. Um, and they are accepting F1, F2, F3, F4, F5 as registerable but rams so i'll explain what that is the rams are only acceptable as registerable at i think it's f4 f5 so when they're nearly a hundred percent so at f1 which is what my lambs are right now they're 50 50 and i have two little ram lambs and two little ewe lambs so the ram lambs in my mind the the to me, the ethical thing to do will be to have them weathered, and weathered means neutered, before they w- uh, so that they would not, if they were to mate with uh, a sheep, so it doesn't like dilute the breed up program, so that it, so that you're not going to introduce the fifty fifty as a breeding trait. Uh, so mm. I, I just feel responsible that. I'm all about this breed up program. I want to achieve almost a hundred percent. It's going to take a few years, but um, some people are selling the Ram lambs and some people are selling them as weathers. And so I think what I can live with is to have them weathered and not sold as Ram lambs. So 
I can't justify keeping them. They're adorable, but I feel like the little guys are probably going to go to new homes at some point if somebody wants to have them as pets or for a hobby farm or a fiber farm. Or, um, that's the kind of animals that they'll be. In my, they're, I won't sell them to somebody who wants to harvest them for me because um, because they're going to be pets. And so, right. um, and not, but I'm not against that. Like in Switzerland, where they're native to, that's what they are. They're like more meat breed. They're also wool breed too. But like they love them, of course, cherish them for their beautiful faces and all of that. But um, you know, they raise them as livestock. So, um, but here in the states, you know, we we just have a tiny population of these animals. So the guys that would leave here would go to homes where they would be pets <laughs> in my way of thinking and um so that, that would be my hope and that the ewes would stay on and then when the ewes are old enough and it depends on how well they grow so that they would uh, you know reach maturity and then i will have them artificially inseminated and then their babies will be f2s and so they'll have a you know higher percentage they'll have 7550 or 7525 of VB Valley Blacknose and um 25% of the Tees Water Mama. So uh and so every year the Valley Blacknose percentage increases. And um and so that you know it's like uh probably a 5 year plan at least to get to the nearly 100%. But that's if uh they use grow you know at a, a great rate but if they mm-hmm. use grow a little bit more slowly then it's in the interest of the animals to be their healthiest so you want to give them the time they need so around here my shetland use i wouldn't breed before they were two years old i give them two full years to grow and almost every other type of you would have almost two years to grow as well some breeds like the larger breeds do grow faster though so they can achieve maturity in less time um i just want my animals to be as healthy and strong as they can be so it'll be a you know there's there's not going to be a hard and fast rule as to what year or when to expect f2s here um so i'm just going to be conservative and say that we would have f2s in the spring of 2021 would it be cool to have f2s in the spring of 2020 yeah, but I, you know, I really want to, I just want to wait and see what, what Jolene and the other little gal do in the next year. Now, the other little gal's name is going to start with a D. And as of today, I have a lot of ideas, but I haven't given her a name. Yet. But <laughs> I knew Jolene was going to be Jolene back before she was born. So um, anyway, the two gals eventually will be laparoscopically artificially inseminated with semen that I will have to purchase. And so this is not a typical yarn farmer thing to do is to go like, this is a real uh, investment. And, Mm -hmm. um, but you know, some people take vacations and some people, (laughs) you know, they dine out and things like that. They're there are all different ways that people do things to to treat themselves, and this is the thing that I'm doing. So <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So if you had like, you're not going to see me in anything fancy. Uh, I'm going to wear beat up clothes, and I'm going to eat, you know, yummy homemade food. Um, probably going to be here on this farm every day for the rest of my life. But I have these Valley <laughs> Black Nose sheep. You know, that's yeah. my. Prada. <laughs> right. And it's so exciting to be there at the very beginning of it, right? Like to have F1s, I think is a really cool thing. Cause it's not like you're getting a Valley black nose after they, you've already had that been in that program for a while. It's like, you're starting a branch of it. Yeah. And I like, I just, you know, I put so much, I just love these guys so much. I always imagine that, that, that it's kind of part of them too like our relationship my relationship with my animals here I think becomes a part of who they are and and I'm not being romantic about it um at all so it's cool to think that the progeny would have like you know this start on my farm here that's just so meaningful um and then eventually be out there in the U.S. because that's you know and they're 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 a rare breed as well, the Valley Black-Nosed Sheep. They just, you know, you, 
really don't hear about them because they're so darn cute. If you do hear or see something about them, it's all about the cuteness. But they are a rare breed. And they're they're not on the livestock conservancy list because I, I don't know actually if there is enough known about them. Um but um it's pretty cool cool to me to be a part of that also to bring a rare breed into existence in the u.s yeah um, and to to share that with the with the folks um you know maybe in the northeast i don't know i had a person who wrote to me today from the south from um alabama who has always wished to have valley black nose sheep so um it'll it'll be interesting to see how far of a reach that these animals would have. I kind of get, I'm very much a helicopter farmer. And so a lot of times when I sell an animal, I make people fill out a livestock application form first because I'm really attached. And I just, I, I just really run them through, you know, many steps because it's like, for me, it's like an adoption. I like to make sure that the animals are placed in the proper home. And so it'll, this sort of um, adventure, allows me to do that too, because I'm not going to auction with them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's wonderful. Um, but, but yeah. And, um, so I know we've, we've really covered a whole lot and it's already been about an hour and I can't believe it. It feels like it's been 20 minutes, but, um, so if people want to, you know, either purchase from you or find you online like, where can they do that? Um, well, well, thanks, Anastasia, for saying it seems like 20 minutes because I've been doing most of the talking and you've been so gracious. <laughs> <laughs> so you are super kind. But um, I love to share online because um, I just can't talk enough in real life. I have to talk online, too. <laughs> I have an Instagram, which is Wing and a Prayer Farm, and it's all one word. And I think um, I have a Twitter account which is wing and a prayer f- no arm on it just ran out of letters so it's wing and a prayer f- f. Um, <laughs> like, no no farm just f and, and then uh, I'm on Facebook we have a wing and a prayer farm um, Facebook page and I have my personal page which is Tammy White and so because my personal and my farm are all the one it seems like I it seems like I cross both on Facebook too um and like I, I'm on Pinterest, but I'm not really on Pinterest. And um, so online, I have a website, wingandaprayerfarm.com. And on the website, I have an events page where I list the things that I'm going to be doing, where I'm going to be teaching for natural dyeing, um, the events that are going to be happening at the farm here. I have a lot of really great fiber arts and homesteading type events coming up in the next several months beginning with, gosh, I don't know. There are lots of things happening um, from now, which is spring through fall here on the farm. And so most of the events are listed through August on my event workshop page on my website. Um, My website is a new domain since uh, I started the farm, new to me since I think March, January, February, March. So Uh, excuse me I haven't finished writing everything on my website so I've been doing like every few weeks I sit down and I I make up some pages on my website but I'm a little behind so if you don't find all the information that you need off our website or on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or Pinterest then write me an email at hello at wingandaprayerfarm.com and lots of times people want to visit the farm and I'm not, not trying to discourage that um but I do require being emailed and set up a time because it's a working farm and I want to make sure that I'm available and there's no conflict. And then another cool thing to share would be that if a person did want to visit the farm, we have open farm on August 31st this year, which is a Saturday. And there'll be a maker market in the barn um, that Taproot Magazine sponsors. And it's a lot of fun. It's beautiful makers here sharing their wares. And I do farm tours and I get everybody who comes to visit the farm involved in some sort of interactive farm chore. Last year, we ran the sheep down to a new field. And um, anyway, it's a lot of fun. Oh, that's so cool. Well, I really, really appreciate you taking the time out to run through all of this with us. 
Well, you're welcome. And I'm, I'm grateful to you for, for sharing this sort of thing. It makes, brings awareness to all the, the good work there is to do in the world on a small farm or in your own home in fiber arts or, you know, whatever, sort of tending the earth. Thank yeah. you, Anastasia. As always, I'll go ahead and link to everything that we talked about, including Tamara's website and her Etsy shop as well, um, on www.woolanddye/podcast. And then you can also find all the events that are going on with Wing and a Prayer on Tamara's website as well. And that includes so many things this year, including the Squam Art Festival, the Vermont Sheep and Wool Festival, as well as the New York Sheep and Wool Festival. Um, There are lots of other pop-ups that she has coming up too. So be sure to check out her events page. And then Just a quick note, I know it took a long time for me to get from episode six to episode seven. There's just been a lot of stuff going on and with lambing season, it's just a tough time for everybody to kind of connect. So I think going forward, I'm going to go ahead and plan on a bi-weekly podcast rather than a weekly one just to make it more sustainable for everyone. So until next time.